0: listening to the Speaking Tongues podcast. I'm your host, El Sharice. Each week, I sit down to a conversation with multilinguals, where we discuss and celebrate language, life and culture through our own perspectives. Episode 63, Speaking Australian English. Hello, language lovers. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Speaking Tongues, a podcast in conversation with multilinguals. Today, I'm speaking with Penny and Beck from the Language Chats podcast, and we are talking about Australian English. I absolutely love talking about every language, but talking about English spoken in different parts of the world is always so much fun for me because I get to learn about how my own native language is expressed in different parts of the world. So I knew that when I was ready to talk about Aussie English, I had to come to my favorite Australian language podcasters for a chat. In this episode, we talk about how second languages taught in Victoria tend to be Asian languages like Mandarin and Japanese. We talk about how multilingualism is expressed among multilingual communities through the country and how the prevalence of these communities can inform the second language offerings in schools. When it comes to English, we talk about the informal nature of Australian culture and language, accents around Australia, and how immigration has created a mix of heritage language and English. We also discuss Indigenous Australians and the efforts that are taken and can be taken regarding acknowledging the heritage of First Peoples. And of course, we have to dispel some popular stereotypes like, do Australians even put shrimps on a Barbie? Where did that even come from? Big thank you to Penny and Beck for this fun conversation and for teaching us a bit about Australia. If you enjoy this episode, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review the Speaking Tongues podcast on Apple Podcasts, or like and subscribe on YouTube so that other language lovers like ourselves can find the show. And if you've been a longtime listener of the show or even a recent listener, you can now support the show on buymeacoffee.com. Links to all platforms are in the show notes. Okay, let's chat. Welcome back to another episode of Speaking Tongues. I am here with Beck and with Penny from Language Chats. How are you ladies? Great, thank you, thanks for having us Elle. Yeah, thanks for having us. I'm so excited to talk to you. And I know you guys are all the way in Australia and I love doing these like massive time difference talks. Like it's a little, like, <laughs> it's so much fun for me. It's like all I wanted in my life. Um, just talk to people on the other side of the world. I like to start each episode with the same question. And that is to both of you, what is your first language and which languages have
1: you learned to speak? Well, I my first language is English and i started properly learning languages probably when i was in high school french japanese a little bit of indonesian and i carried on japanese through to university and picked up vietnamese as well and then chinese i added as an adult but they're probably my my core <laughs> Very cool.
2: My first language is also English. The first language that I started learning was French, and I learned French all through my school years, um, but at school I also had to do Japanese and Indonesian, you're probably seeing a pattern here, um, and <laughs> then um, as an adult I then picked up German and then some Italian, and I've recently started learning
0: Danish. Wow. We've got like a United Nations here. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> so Japanese and Indonesian, um, were those languages compulsory or were they optional and, and you guys were just interested in, in learning them? How did, how did that work?
1: For me, yeah, the languages, actually, we did have to have a compulsory element for about maybe... A couple of years in high school, um, but then I was loving it so much that I continued with Japanese um, and and French for a little bit as well. But I think the the push for Japanese was really strong in the 1990s, which is when I went to school. Beck is about 10 years younger than me, but she can answer that in a sec. Um, and- I'm a '90s girl too, so. <laughs> <laughs> so. You know, there was was a huge, you know, economic push, trade push with Australia and Japan and so Japanese was seen as a very logical, sensible language to be pushing in schools. Um, It's still really popular now but um, I would say um, Chinese has also come on as probably another popular Asian language being taught. Hmm. Would you say that, Beck as well?
2: Yep. Definitely. I agree. I think so. I was um, in the nineties, I was more in like kind of the primary school years. um, And when I first started, so it like, I mean, it very much depended on what school you went to because each school kind of has their, I guess, freedom to choose whatever language they would like to choose, whatever teachers they have to teach the language. Um, And things like French and Italian, especially in sort of, I guess, in the nineties in particular, were very popular at the junior levels. But then increasingly, so yeah, at a at a higher, more senior level, Japanese, I remember being very popular then and was still kind of being pushed. But the transition to Japanese being the kind of preferred Asian language to Mandarin Chinese becoming the preferred Asian language to teach at school um, sort of happened as I was going through high school. Um, And then I think now that's probably a much more evident um, shift um, where now even at much younger years, um, Mandarin Chinese is very popular as the second, the first second language to teach to students. At I least see. in at least in the state that we live in. Um, so it can vary quite significantly across the country in Australia, and it's a big place. And yeah, other it's but it, it's very much about this kind of I think sense of regional relevance um, that drives mm-hmm. what what languages have sort of been
0: promoted as a good option for school students to learn do you know of like what popular languages there are for students to learn in in other regions of australia
2: um so well penny i don't know if you've got a little bit more of an insight into that
1: i was going to say i mean they're they're pretty similar but what i think we do find is that some some schools um, might pick up on a community language that's popular in their suburb or their region. So, for example, um, Vietnamese is a good example. Some schools um, speak that because they're living in, a, in a quite a, um, uh, a big Vietnamese population. Um, Auslan, so that's our sign language as well. Um, and Indigenous languages are becoming more popular to be taught in schools and that is quite regional specific as well. So depending Mm, on which part of the country, which language you would be teaching.
2: And hopefully in the future I think that will grow. I think it would be really nice to see more awareness and more accessibility um, for especially younger students to have that kind of connection perhaps to Indigenous languages. Um, But, yeah, I suppose in, in the area that we live and Victoria is one of the pop, most popular, I would say it's the, is it the second most popular state in Australia after New South Wales? Yeah, I think I think that's yep. probably right. Um, so, like as a kind of general view, the top six languages that were studied at our final year of high school in 2019. So last year, I've got info on that. But um, the first one was Chinese as a first language. So we have both a first language and second language split sometimes too. So Chinese is a first language, French. Japanese as a second language, Italian, Chinese as a second language, and then German. So they were the top six foreign languages studied at yeah, our final year of high school in, in our state in Victoria. So that probably already gives you a little bit of a and um, kind of an overarching view to see how there is a mixture of Asian and European, the kind of traditional European languages Um for study. And that also in some ways mirrors the way that people view foreign languages and their kind of usefulness um, (laughs) here as well.
0: (laughs) Tell me about when you were in school and you started studying languages, How what was that like? I'm saying this because, um, you know, Australia, like the US, like the UK is an English speaking country. And I know that as many of us are native English speakers, there's not that much emphasis placed on learning a foreign language for fluency where in other countries, I, from my perspective, I feel like it's so um, you know, like everybody does it. It's so popular and, and expected of students. So in Australia, as you both are learning languages and I guess your colleagues and from what you notice of people around you, what was the attitude toward that? What was, how did people feel about it?
1: Very, very much. Why are you bothering? Because <laughs> everyone speaks English in the world. You know, we we live on an island, so naturally we are geographically removed from other countries like to to get to Indonesia or to Papua New Guinea, we have to, you know, fly. Um, And so I think that that kind of sense that we have to know other languages is not something that's in our our psyche as Australians. So I think when I was growing up, it was like, oh, that's cool. You know, what are you going to do? You're going to be an interpreter or, you know, maybe go into teaching. I'm just like, oh, I don't know, just just for fun maybe, <laughs> um, um, that there was a sense that, you know, why you, you've got to have a really good reason to be interested in languages and it has to be linked somehow to your career or to money. Did you, I mean, I think you found that too, back, right? Like-
2: yeah, I think it was kind of, there's a little bit of puzzlement uh, mm. <laughs> sort of when people, like the idea of learning a language Yeah, it definitely feels like it has to be connected to a particular objective. Like, yeah, are you, do you enjoy it so much that you'd teach it? Or um, are you considering moving somewhere else to use that language? So do you want to become a diplomat and use your language skills somewhere else because you're not going to be able to use them in Australia? Um, Or, yeah, very much a... It, I wouldn't say that it was really about learning a language for pleasure. I don't think that people necessarily had that sort of idea in their minds. Um, and in some ways, it, it's partly also the the narrative that kind of funding for languages and stuff put, puts forward. So, you know, the idea that we would support languages that have some kind of economic benefit for us to know really predisposes people to thinking that it's only worth learning if it's useful in that way, Um, whereas, you know, as people who love and enjoy languages, we now know as adults that it's, it's it's not necessarily about that. Like, yes, sometimes it is. Sometimes it's very much about like a means to an end. You need to be able to learn a language to be able to conduct business in it, for example. But... You know, especially these days when so many people do speak English. You know, we have many other motivations about why we think that learning a language is good. Um, you know, we think it's interesting. We think it's a, a it's a social good. Um, you know, to know right. and learn other languages. It's interesting. It's a part of heritage. It's you know, for many people as well in Australia, and I'm guessing this is this is, would also be true for many people in the U.S. and other English-speaking countries. You know, when you do have a family background that is connected to linguistic heritage um there's there's something very deep and emotional about knowing that there might be a language in your history um like so my family although I, n- I never learnt this language but my my mum's side of the family speaks Hokkien um which is a, a Chinese cool. language and a, a, an Asian language um, I'm not going to say dialect because I think that's what I always used to say as a kid and now I know that it's actually not a very good description of what Hokkien is. <laughs> um, right. But it's just what you know—it's what my mum and what my, what my family used to say. I said, oh, it's a dialect of Chinese. Mm, not quite. But, um, you know, I, I grew up listening to that language a lot because my grandparents looked after me a lot of the time before I started school and I had a very close connection with them. And in my mind, I would love one day to learn some Hokkien properly because although yeah, for, for me it's not... Um, yeah, it's not a language I could speak. I understand very, very sparse vocabulary, and it's the things that I remember from my, when I was a kid—things like sleep and milk and bread and vegetables, you know? <laughs> like a, <laughs> that, sort, that sort of stuff. But I know that it's a part of like my family's story, and I think lots of other people have that kind of connection to their languages too. Whether it's Greek, whether it's Vietnamese, whether it's Mandarin Chinese, whether it—you know—could it be all all manner of languages from all around the world. And these are all good reasons to to have a connection with a language, not because necessarily they're just useful for an economic purpose or for a, an right. occupational purpose. They can be much, much more than that. And that's an interesting and important thing for kind of human history.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Do you feel like attitudes are changing and people are more open and embracing than they were like, you know, when you were in school?
2: Yeah, I, I, would, I would say so. I think that there has been some change in that. I think people are, maybe it's partly the accessibility of resources and stuff too, that I think people realise now. And also the, like, you know, people travel, have travelled more. Let's, let's just like exclude the last 18 months. <laughs> um, but yeah, like, you know, Australians love to travel. Um, for a not very big population, we've Sometimes it feels like there are Australians everywhere when you're travelling and, you know, we do like to get out and partly I think that's related to just isolation. We feel like we have to get out um, of the country sometimes. But I think that often gives people real motivation as an adult to go, you know, I'd love to learn some, you know, you've spent this fantastic holiday in I don't know, Italy or France wherever and you go actually I would have really liked to be able to speak some of the language and they come back and they go actually yeah, maybe, I, maybe I will um, and you know that kind of greater awareness I think can help to for people to realize that language is not just something that you had to learn by heart at school, in a classroom, at a desk. Um, It's a way of communicating with other people and enjoying another culture. Um, And I think that that realization
0: is also a really positive thing. Yeah. And I I picked up on something that you were both talking about, like, you know, in school, the option to like, what were you going to do with the language was just so limited, like be a diplomat, be a teacher, be an interpreter. And like, I got a lot of that too. Mm -hmm. And like, now that I'm in this language world and I'm meeting people like yourselves and, and other people who really love language, I think it's so amazing. Like I never knew that I could do so much with learning a language and I wish I could go back in time and, and like start over because you know, I knew I didn't want to be a teacher. So it was like, I wasn't going to do that. And I didn't think for a minute I'd be a diplomat, but, um, I love that there's so much information out now and like people are traveling more. Well, like you said, uh, have been traveling more and have been getting out and seeing the world more. And, and I love that. I, I feel like I can't tell if it's changing in the U S if people feel differently about it. I'm
1: I've read some really interesting stats this week and I I don't have them on the top of my head, but it was to do with streaming multilingual shows and TVs and films and stuff like via Netflix and other platforms and just how that has gone through the roof the last 12 months Um, and how all the the Spanish and the French and the, the Japanese content is just so popular now to stream in its original language, so not watching it in a dubbed version I thought oh that's that's a good stat or something good to remind ourselves that because that's like a real tangible thing that people are open to watching a show in another language for both of you what was
0: it or when was it when you kind of realized like Okay. This language thing is for me. Like I'm, I'm want to learn another language. I'm going to like, what was your spark? What was your, what was your starting point? What made you go from just like the student who's trying to pass the class to like, I love languages and I'm going to, I'm going to make this part of my life.
1: Oh, such a great question. Um, I think for me, I had a year living in Vietnam when I was 18. So straight after high school, and I had the chance to learn Vietnamese while I was there. I was living there. I just soaked it up. It was the best experience, and I ended up changing what I was going to study at university, turned it into a languages degree, and I think that was it for me, just being in the country, being immersed and learning this new language um, was just a huge, a huge tipping point for me. But then, of course, you know, life Got interrupted and I got pulled away from languages for a good, you know, ten or something years. But yeah, now I'm back. So
2: yeah, I think for me, um, probably my my real realization that I liked more than one language came quite a bit later. Like, not it wasn't until language had almost disappeared from my life that I realized how much I missed it. Um and at that stage I'd really only proper I mean properly like for a decent amount of time studied French. So like I mean I did I did Japanese for a little for oh, I don't know 3 or 4 years at school but while at the same time as doing French but I I always really liked French at school. Um and I kind of saw myself as just enjoying French. Um I liked that and I was kind of connected to this one language. It was only once I had done you know, I'd sort of done all of my uni degree. I did a bit of French while I was at university still just to keep it up. But then I, you know, I sort of finished, I did a master's and then I got into the kind of the world of work. And then I was, I really felt like I was missing something. And I, I sort of came to this realization that actually what I was missing in my life was the languages part of my life that had gone and that it wasn't just French. Like I I had, you know, sort of dabbled in a couple of just like audio courses and things while I'd been on holidays. You know, every time I'd gone traveling, I was just interested in, you know, understanding signs and I wanted to learn greetings and stuff. And then I sort of realized that I was like, wait, maybe maybe I should have kept doing something with that. And then I started learning some German. <laughs> I started learning some German and um, and then I was like, oh, God, I've missed this so much. And that was actually kind of the sort of reawakening for me in sort of my early, oh, my mid-20s um, when I realised that I was like, you know, actually I think this is my jam. Like I was like I'm getting so much. I'm so <laughs> getting so much out of this. And, you know, and then it was kind of a slippery slope. I was suddenly like, oh what can I learn next and um, you know and I was making time for it but I never felt like it was uh, like it was you know effort that homework for me for like learning languages didn't feel like this like horrible weight on my shoulders which is how I had felt about you know all of the other things that I studied at uni I studied something very very unrelated Um, so you know I, I kind of was realizing that this is maybe this is what learning how it's supposed to really feel pleasurable and then I was like, what else can I do with this? And so I think, yeah, for me it was probably a little a little later in the piece. And then I started, you know, just yeah. reassessing everything. God, God, maybe I should have maybe I should have <laughs> changed my entire degree to language. I should've done what Penny did. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Everyone has their own path.
2: <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I'm still grateful for all the experiences I had. But it is it is funny how you can get to that point of you know I think I think you get built up and probably many other people have had this experience too. You know you you grow up being kind of taught that you'll you know pick a pick an occupation and you'll go to university mm-hmm. and then you'll study that and then you'll get a job and then you'll have this nice linear career that sort of takes you on a path where you'll just get better and better at that thing that you studied at uni and um you know in reality for many people it doesn't work out like that at all because you you go to university you study something and then you're like wow this is not what i thought it was going to be <laughs> <laughs> and then, and then you get into a job where you're like, "Well, this is also not what I thought it was going to be," and um, and you know, things twist and turn, just like they do on the path of learning a language. You know, it, it, you think it's going to be this linear path where you just learn more vocabulary and you learn more grammar and you'll get really good. Actually, it goes up and down all over the place, and sometimes you lose all of your knowledge <laughs> and you have to come back. And you know, journeys are never are never a straight line. Um,
0: yeah. And
2: I think one of the great things about language in general is that it is never too late. You can always come back. You can learn at any time in your life. At no point have you missed the boat. Mm. It's just always the boats are literally always there at the port waiting for you, ready to jump on. Like just whenever you're ready, you just hop in and you can and you can go the for words. it and sail somewhere else. Yeah, <laughs> love it. The words I needed to hear. <laughs> <laughs> like I've spoken to I've spoken to so many people <laughs> over over the years who, you know, they'll be like, oh, I tried to learn some Italian once when I went on a holiday, or I tried to learn some French once because I had a French boyfriend or a French girlfriend or, you know, and I'm like, Well, you could always come back to it. And they kind of go, Oh, well, you know, it was so long ago though. And I'm like, so what? You know, you got there's any, any, any time. And like you said before, there are so many resources now. There is nothing is cut off right. from anybody
0: yeah Mm. i love that you i love that message that you say that not just because like personally i'm coming to terms with that like i'm i'm trying to improve my french trying to improve my italian and i'm like am i too old for this why am i doing this why didn't i do this before and then i just tell myself now like just chill out take your time and you know there's nothing riding on this. It's just because it's something that I want to do. And I think that like a lot of people will say, you know, I've always wanted to learn insert language here. And I'm like, well, why don't you do it? Like at least learn like your numbers, the colors, the, you know, the alphabet or just something basic to just get started. And I always wonder like, why do, why are people like not afraid, but why are people so reluctant? Is it
1: like is it cuz it's hard work because there's no <laughs> shying away that from yeah it is the fact that it is it is hard like it takes it takes effort and it takes motivation and commitment and you know it's still it's still fun but i think i always think of it as um like learning a language as like working out exercise because you know motivation wanes and I'm someone who needs accountability, so for me to turn up to my exercise class, you know, I have to register on an app so that she knows I'm coming. And it's just like you know an iTalki class on the internet, right? You have to register and you pay in advance and you you're committed. Um, so for me, there's yeah, they are two really great parallels because that's that's me. I need that external push. Um, other people aren't like that, and that's that's great. I'm a bit jealous of those people, but that's me. <laughs> yeah, I, so, I, <laughs> I I agree. I think
2: I think one it is it is hard work, as you say, and that can be a, a scary prospect. Um, I also think that there's something a little deeper in the way that adults, especially, um, kind of start feeling very secure in their knowledge and their abilities in life, and actually, it's quite. Um, it can be quite stressful um, to consider yourself in a position where you almost regress to a childlike level of knowledge. And I think that um, learning a language from, you know, As an adult, but as a beginner, um, can be like that. Suddenly, you know nothing. (laughs) Like, you actually know nothing. And when someone asks you a question, you can't answer. Like, you've got, you can be a a full and intelligent, mature person with a job where you can do complicated things on a daily basis. And then suddenly, someone tries to get you to like, say what you do or say your name or your age in another language and you have nothing. (laughs) Like suddenly you just blank and you're like, I haven't felt like this since I was an age that I can't remember anymore. You know, when when you're young enough to not know how to answer a question, you you can, rarely can people remember that. Um, But actually that's kind of what learning a language can be like when you're an adult because yeah, you suddenly have none of the words and you have to build up vocabulary to be able to communicate again. So that is, I guess that's part of hard work, but it's also a really like a quite a, sort of a mental state of saying, oh, I'm okay to huge. feel a bit dumb. Huge. Yeah, yeah, like I, I'm cause... okay to feel like a child again. And like, I can't, like, I'm just going to be silent for a bit until I've got enough knowledge to, to be able to even have a simple conversation mm. and then to be able mm-hmm. to build on that more and more and more
1: and that might take years (laughs) actually probably will Um, take years (laughs) putting putting yourself out there and completely out of your comfort zone is is terrifying and that's what language learning is about often Um, but what a great life skill to learn and share with our kids and I mean, that's that's why I think language learning is such a great thing for people to take on because not only are you learning a language, but you are really stretching yourself, you know, personally. Um, right. And I think it brings, you know, you bring that to all other facets of your life as well. I think, yeah, out of your comfort zone, do it, people. <laughs>
0: <laughs> this is some valuable advice. So... Can we talk about Australian English? Mm -hmm. Sure we can. (laughs) (laughs) That was a smooth segue into into talking about Australian English. Um, I I love this because um, I love how English is so different um, in different English-speaking countries. And I love how we all have different accents, we all have different spellings for words, we all have different names for things. Um I want to know about Australian English. What are some things that in your opinion make it unique?
2: Oh, so, there's there's so much in this. <laughs> <laughs> well, my sorry, okay, I guess my first The first thing I would say about what makes Australian English distinctive, um, and this—I guess this is coming from an Australian speaker—so I feel like you know maybe if you are not an Australian, like you you haven't grown up in Australia, but you've come to Australia and you've noticed things that people say, maybe you would have a different opinion. I think we shorten words a lot, so Mm. um, in some ways, for whatever better word, Australian English is a little bit lazy. I think, Um, and we kind of, it's almost like sometimes when words are a bit too long and formal, we shorten them to make them less, more casual and approachable, maybe.
1: Um, Is that about (laughs) like, so bringing people, like getting people into, you know, close into you as well because by... I totally agree, Beck. We are huge shortness. I do it all the time. And, but I feel like it's a way of, you know, forming relationships. Like, because if you, if you speak casually together, it means you're kind of, oh, you're, we're in, you know?
2: Yeah, exactly. And it, yeah, it's a, it's a very, it's a way of making other people feel more comfortable, um, as well as kind of making a conversation potentially less serious, um, and like less serious, not just, uh, what, what do I mean by less serious? Like, well, we're not formal, are we? There's yeah, we're no, not. We're not formal at all. No formality. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very casual. But also to sometimes make quite serious topics um, a bit less scary. And actually, probably a good example of that that's very, you know, current is coronavirus because um, everything about COVID. I think, and like it was like people predicted this at the beginning of last year about how Australian English was going to shorten things um and and try and make things more casual and then it just happened and everyone was like oh of course it did like (laughs) look at how they predicted that instead of saying isolation everyone was going to say iso and instead of saying coronavirus we were going to call it the rona and you know i think those those changes happened really fast and were exactly as some like linguistic experts expected it would happen and it definitely did you know hands. Sanitizer became hand sanny or hand san Um, and yeah suddenly everything didn't feel quite as serious anymore and that wasn't to say that the situation was less serious because obviously we had like the full gravity of how important and um, necessary a bunch of measures were last year you know in Melbourne in particular we were in lockdown for quite a bit of the middle of last year and um, it just I don't know whether it was just a coping mechanism for everyone to make things be like okay we know it's serious but if we can't laugh about it then we're all just going to cry so (laughs) you know we almost change our language to reflect that too to make everybody feel more comfortable about a situation that might otherwise be quite negative.
0: Mm. Mm. The shortened words is this something that happens amongst friends and family or is it something i'd hear on the news
1: ooh, ooh. good question i i, I <laughs> think more st- more among st- family st- i think and friends yeah yeah there's still you know things like the news is still there's still a, a formality unless it's like a joking segment or it's a really lighthearted story um but yeah there's still um we still you know, I still speak proper <laughs> English underneath. <on> the <laughs>
2: yeah. yeah, there is still. I suppose there's um, there's a uh, Well, I mean, in like British sort of um, what do we call it? Um, RP. Received. Like, yeah, received, received pronunciation. pronunciation. Mm. Received pronunciation in the UK. I, I think Australia also has its own kind of standard newsreader pronunciation which is exactly what RP really is um so that that sort of formal English for broadcasting um is is very much still there as Penny says but I think on on the ground like sort of on a, on a regular basis even in the workplace the shortening of words is is normal and not um you know people would really blink an eye at sort of hearing oh I've got a meeting this Avo with you know, that was the director. That's
1: exactly what I was going to say, the servo, It's just a, <laughs> yeah, yeah, such like, a common, yeah. Or like
2: I, you know, I'm meeting some friends for a drink after work so I need to stop by a servo to fill up the car with petrol. So like things like that, that would in normal conversation be um, very, yeah, like not at all unusual. You could have those kinds of conversations with a co-worker um, as well your as boss. your friends and family or your boss. Yeah. Um, Unless you work somewhere that's With very boss. particularly formal. <laughs> oh look, I mean, depends. It depends how close you are. I suppose it could be if, it, if it's <laughs> if it's a very formal workplace of some sort, then perhaps. But uh, you know, I think something that Australian English maybe has almost lost in most contexts is a sense of register difference. So, um, hmm. you know, they're really. Uh, you know, it would almost seem unusual to have a very, very, very formal relationship with at least your direct manager at work. You know, you, you'd like to hope that you have a casual enough relationship to to be able to say, I'll see you to Zavo.
0: I would love to know if you know, how do regional dialects change? How, do, how does the Australian manner of speaking change throughout the country?
1: I would have to say that that we're pretty standardised as a country, um, accent-wise. There are some slight differences between some pronunciations, and definitely with some vocab. Um, but on the whole, I think if you tested Beck and I and said, you know, is this person from Brisbane or is this person from Perth or Sydney, we we wouldn't be able to guess. Mm. Would you agree, Beck? <laughs>
2: Yeah, I think so, especially for the main, like the main capital cities. So if you, yeah, like Melbourne, Sydney, Brisbane, Adelaide, Perth um, in particular, like, oh, there's not much difference. People often say that Adelaide has a bit of a specific accent. Adelaide is sort of uh, west of Melbourne. It's more central um, and on the southern coast. And um, yeah, people sometimes say that the Adelaide accent is a bit particular, um, but like for the most part I don't think that it's really noticeable um sometimes people say as well that the more like the more north you go sort of head towards Queensland just that where it's sort of tropical lots of beaches the kind of you know Australia that people picture in their in their (laughs) minds (laughs) white white sand and and you know coral reefs um you know that that it's tends to change more the further away you sort of get in that direction um, and, you know, but it's also that it's just, it's a big country. I think, you know, the regional regional areas um, compared to the cities, there's probably sometimes a little bit of difference there um, but realistically like Australia is still a young place. I think um, and that means that our regional accents you know, there hasn't really been time for them to develop and there's probably been too much movement throughout the country over the the short history of Australia as well for anything to develop that's very, very, very distinctive. Um, unlike hmm. other places in the world where the history is longer and people had less movement um, between regional areas and that meant that, you know, the way that you spoke in Yorkshire in the UK became significantly different to the way that you might speak in the southern part of the UK or the way that you speak in in Scotland is is very obviously different to the way that you speak in Ireland um and yeah that that sort of separation I'm not sure that we've ever had that um yeah if anything places yeah too much places, hodgepodge. Yeah, too, much, too much of a mixture yeah yeah and there's yeah. been a lot of a lot of movement, you know, lots of people who even grew up in kind of what we like the country or like um outside of a main city. like often people move to the main cities to perhaps for education or for work or um for all sorts of reasons. so yeah, a lot of a lot of mixture. Um, mm. but yeah, i don't I don't know if there's any very, very, very distinct differences
0: that's so interesting because like the u s is a big country too. And I think about our regional, you know, dialects, and they're so different. I mean, they're not like bonkers different, but it's like, you can hear the difference between me, someone who lives in the Northeast and someone who lives in Louisiana or someone who lives in in Mississippi or in Texas in the South um, versus somebody who lives out West, like in California.
1: so even as Australians, we can we can detect that difference too, which yeah, I yeah. think is amazing. But I think that comes down to, you know, television and things like that. But
0: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I definitely I'm I'm really surprised. Like I thought that if I had heard someone maybe from Perth and then someone also and then another person from Sydney that I would be able to tell like, Oh, this person's from the West, this person's from the East. And no, that's not the case. No, not it's really. Probably, probably
2: something that is more distinct actually, if I think about it is um, people who have some kind of cultural linguistic heritage that might actually be more where you notice a quite distinct community-based difference in the way that they speak English in Australia. So yeah, um, Like I can definitely think of people I know who, for example, have a like – a yeah, particular cultural heritage and actually the members of that community speak English in Australia in a particular way. So we're getting to like subsets of subsets here, you know. It's a <laughs> it's like there is a kind of broader, like I suppose, standard Australian accent for want of a better way of describing it. But I think that, yeah, communities, especially culturally based communities, um, may have their own way of using English here and sometimes that is because of a mixture of how they use a heritage language in combination with English. Actually, it's really beautiful. Oh, it's a okay. lovely kind of diversity. Like I, I know that um, you know, the Italian community in Australia, which is quite big and, the, and actually the Greek community is another good example of that too, where like often families who Let's say now it would kind of be their grandparents or something. So people in their like sort of 70s, 80s, and 90s now who may have immigrated to Australia in the in the 50s, you mm. know, came as as adults already. So they they spoke their own native language. And they came to Australia and then they learned well, they may have learned some English already, but then they probably learnt English to be able to conduct business. However, they still right. very much spoke their own home language. With their family and with their community which was quite you know in many cases very tight-knit because people really needed that that community now that they'd moved to this new country. And often, yet yeah, words from those languages would make their way into their style of Australian English. And then, you know, their kids would sometimes use some of those things, but maybe only with their parents. They'd have almost another register for how they speak with their friends at school or with their, you know, at, in a work context. And then now their grandchildren have almost again it's like they know that there are these particular words that their grandparents used to describe things like there was one in particular i know this is a random example but somebody saying how (laughs) like you know in italian there is a word for fence but many families in (laughs) in melbourne like you know they hear their nonna or their nonno talk about the fencer you know and it's like Uh. it's it's kind of (laughs) there would be like this almost yeah this mixture of of almost dialect is kind of like a tallow Australian dialect that wasn't quite here nor there but became a very like familiar and casual way of using both languages but to a way that everybody involved knew exactly what was going on So there's no loss of comprehension just this really right. interesting development of kind of almost a I think what they call like a family
0: How if you know at all how have um, Aboriginal languages, affected Australian English or uh, affected, um, I guess, where do you see Aboriginal language used in Australia? Um, is it in place names? Is it in names for foods or maybe um, common words or phrases or any any practices or anything that that goes on?
1: I would love to say that, you know, it's widespread and Aboriginal languages are, you know, a huge part of our everyday way of talking but you know sadly that it's not not the case but place names definitely there are so many place names that come from an aboriginal language of that of that region um some of our animals some of our most famous animals um, kangaroo wallaby um come from the aboriginal word um I read the other day too that a, a term that we we say a bit yakka I, th- I think I hope I'm saying I'm going to say this right now like hard <laughs> um, yakka? hard yakka hard yakka as in terms you know of working hard hard work the term yakka is a, an aboriginal word but there's not a lot beck mm-hmm. th- as well that I can think of that that we use in everyday in everyday language yeah there's there's
2: a long way to go it's a topic that really needs to be talked about more in australia it's a very you know, it's it's emotional and it's hard. It's actually, our, I think, Australia's relationship with the First Peoples who lived on this land before us is complicated, um, and it's not it's not easy. Um, I think you know today, as Australians who you know identify as Australian, lived here all of our lives. You know, I'm not comfortable with the the situation. <laughs> I'm not. I'll I'll be super honest about it. I think it's, you know, something that I think we are often a bit embarrassed by and it's not something that gives us pride. Um, Indigenous people in Australia have been like quite honestly treated terribly by our governments over the time, you know, by, you know, we were a previous colony and we know what the history of colonisation has meant for many Indigenous cultures and people and their languages. Um, and there was just so so long where people were forced to not speak languages, and yeah. that's a really a really sad and you know dark but important part of our history. You know, just because it's sad doesn't mean that we shouldn't talk about it. In fact, it's more important that you talk about it because it is sad and dark.
1: Um, right. And I think
2: people people are more open about that now than they mm. were in our, you know, more recent history, sorry, you know, in in our history previously, it's um, I think people, yeah, people do talk about it a lot more. There's a big discussion of the gap um, that there is between Indigenous communities in Australia and kind of the, you know, white city, the the, the rest of the population, however you would, however we might describe it. Um,
1: And and that gap, you know, is across Everything, isn't it? Exactly. Education, infant mortality, um, healthcare—it's Health. across a whole bunch of different yeah. different parts of life.
2: And linguistic, yeah, the linguistic and cultural heritage part of that is just one part of many. Um, but interestingly, it's all related. You know, I think something that there, I know there's been a lot of work on is sort of the emotional impact of people losing their heritage in that way. Um, whether it is losing language, it's losing connections, it's also losing stories. And because so these, you know, there are there were hundreds of indigenous languages in Australia um, pre-colonisation, um, mm. and many of them were oral. Actually, I think all of them were oral languages. Um, you know, in terms of we sort of rely on the records. Of some, you know, many, many, for many of those languages, the records that might have been taken um, at some point in the history of the last few hundred years, somebody may have a recording, somebody might have something written down. Um, and you know, for, for some languages, that information is stronger than others. Um, and there had been a real push in yeah, in more recent times to make sure that what information we do have is documented to make sure that all of the, you know, at least some of the very, very many indigenous languages in Australia
0: aren't lost. How do, how do you, and maybe you already answered this, but how do you feel like people are having that conversation? How do you think that people are embracing and trying to make those connections with indigenous communities, um, to, I hate to say rectify the past because there is no rectification for it, but how, how do you see people making an attempt?
1: I think, I mean, technology has a a huge part to play in this. And I think we can see this every day. Um, with access to technology and stories people naturally can reach a broader a broader audience and so things like being able to talk about your your language and your people and your history on a podcast or on a YouTube video or through a song and have that broadcast widely is, you know, a huge thing that we never used to be able to do. Um, And I think social media as well is really important. Um, There's also, there's just, you know, worldwide as well, there's just been a huge, a huge push for people to acknowledge the inequity and to acknowledge the harm that's been done and to be more, you know, open for starters, but to be more cognizant of the fact that we have to be more proactive in learning and exposing, I suppose. Maybe that's yeah. not the right word. But, you know, yeah, being, being part of this this world that we have always been part of but it's been kind of hidden hidden away. Mm. So,
2: I think a really important word that Penny just mentioned then was acknowledgement. Like I think it's not so much about rectifying, because like obviously there are things that have happened in the past that like as a current generation you can't we can't fix. You know, we, we can't we can't turn back time and say, Oh well, you know, the government shouldn't have taken away the children of indigenous communities and you know, taking them away from their families to assimilate them into white Australian culture. Like we, we can't go back and fix that, um, even though we recognise that it's, it was terrible. Um, but it's more about recognition and acknowledgement. It's saying we can look back, we can say that wasn't right. Um, but we can also like more look towards the future and say, okay, well, what can you do now? How can, how can you make sure that you know, as I was saying before, sort of, you know, make sure that these things don't disappear. Make sure that the cultures aren't gone. Make sure that the, you know, the languages remain. Um, How can they be revived within the communities Mm. that want them and need them for their own cultural heritage? It's... Yeah, it is. Um, I think it would be it would be good to hear people talking about it more. I think I think that they are. There's definitely a as a, as a general topic, people do talk about it more now. There's a real focus. There has been, I would say, in probably the last five or ten years in this year kind of closing the gap idea, but also in acknowledging that there are some things that, like, for example, we we have a, a national day in January, Australia Day, and for for a long time, for a while now, people have been talking about that kind of being a bit of a... You know, an, an insensitive date to mm. to remember because you know, a lot of people. I don't know if you would have if you would have had this, but in Australia, like a lot of people, do kind of have this. They call it Invasion Day rather than it being um, Australia Day, and it was always supposed to kind because of commemorate it's the date. Yeah, sorry, Penny, you go. On.
1: <laughs> no, because I was just going to say because it's the date that commemorates the arrival of the first fleet from Europe. Yes, mm-hmm. so it's Orogenous, you
2: know yeah, yeah, like things like that. Uh, there is there is a sense now. I think especially among the younger sort of generations that there are some things that we could do to make a larger impact to recognize the the people who were here first.
0: So I like to talk about culture on this show, as well as language, and as well as. Um colonizer history apparently, but I, (laughs) I, things that I think of that come to mind when I hear Australia, um, you know, not bad things, all lovely things, amazing things. Australia is amazing. Um, but what are some things about Australia and Australian culture that you think people should know that they may not be aware of?
2: What a good question! Good question.
1: Mm. Well, I think something that that comes to mind is that the majority of Australians live in cities, and I think that is sometimes forgotten that we there's this beautiful romantic vision of us all living either on huge outback farms with our with our kangaroos and our cattle, or that we live right on the you know the ocean, which you know. All the cities, a lot of the major cities in Australia, are on the on the um, on the ocean, but yeah, you know, a huge proportion of our population live in built up built up areas, and we face a lot of the same kind of s- struggles and annoyances of living in a city that other people find in other countries. Mm-hmm. Um, what else, Beck? We don't um, put shrimps on the barbie that much. Yeah. <laughs> Where did that come from? What is that all about? Crocodile Dundee, isn't it? Yes. Paul Hogan in Also, we don't call them shrimps. We call
2: them prawns. They're prawns in Mm. Australia. Not shrimps. Prawns. (laughs) We do say Barbie.
1: We do say Barbie. That's another good shortening. Come over the Sabo for a Barbie. That's another
2: shortening. That's
1: another shortened
0: word. Um, Barbie. Okay.
1: I
2: think probably something else that is good to know, well, I suppose this is also about geography of Australia, is um, that things are really really far apart. I think um, probably much more so than lots of other places in the world. We have real like geographic separation from our major cities. Um, And although Mm. most people live in the cities, those cities are not close. Um, You know, people often think that Melbourne and Sydney could be like a short drive away. It's not. It's like a two-hour flight. So, and that for us is short. So, (laughs) you know, a two-hour flight to Sydney from Melbourne Roughly, um, you know, Perth from Melbourne is about three and a half hours. I think. Is that is that right, Penny? Yep. Yeah, yeah. So oh, yeah. yeah, Melbourne, Melbourne to Perth is close to four hours. Melbourne to Brisbane is a good two and a half. I think. Um, You know, the distance between Melbourne, okay, obviously this is a bit Melbourne-centric because we live close to Melbourne. (laughs) But I I do think about things in this kind of context. So I think the distance from Melbourne to Brisbane, which is, you know, north north of here and north of Sydney, the distance from Melbourne to Brisbane is roughly the same as the distance from Melbourne to Townsville. Now, Townsville is like far north Queensland, but to give... Scale of how long the eastern seaboard of Australia is, like we're talking about, you know, Brisbane being kind of halfway. Now, lots of people think that Brisbane is very north because it's in Queensland, but actually, it's right at the base of Queensland, and Queensland is this hugely kind of tall um state within Australia. So, anyone who's listening to this might need to do a quick Google Maps check. Um, yeah, I, I, I just did that. Where any of those places <laughs> are, but the. Um, It's, you know, yeah, people do kind of feel like, oh, well, you know, Brisbane's kind of north. Well, actually, it's only really halfway to where it's really north. (laughs) So, yeah, I think that sense of scale in Australia is um, like to us very normal, Um, but for many other people, and I think especially people who plan to travel here under normal circumstances, like, um, you know, they sort of think they could probably come to Australia for just a you know, maybe two weeks or something and see lots. And it's like, well, if you came for a couple of weeks, you'd probably need to see like one or two places, but you might want to stay longer if you want to do a really big trip.
1: And I think the other thing I would add as well is Australia gets a bad rap for dangerous creatures. And I would just say um, it's true. (laughs) We have a lot but <laughs> the they <not> spiders, spiders <laughs> snakes, crocodile, sharks. There's, yeah, there's lots, lots of things, but in reality we don't get to see them that often. Yeah.
2: <laughs> they're not usually in the big cities.
1: That's a relief. Yeah.
0: <laughs> that That's a relief. I, I feel like we get all the, the Australian like horror stories of like these giant, like spiders and the like, you know fire ants and like all these like crazy things and I'm like Australians are so brave because <laughs> nature is nature's dangerous there uh, but really. I like
2: why not we're not really that brave no <laughs>
0: <laughs> we just stay away from them all um let's talk about your respective endeavors I know that you both co-host language chats podcast um, Penny I know you have your lingo mama blog and Beck you have irregular endings Tell us all about that um, tell us how you got started uh, what are your some of what are some of your goals with these endeavors um, and of course most importantly please tell us where we can find you
1: well about three years ago um, Beck was presenting at the online women and language conference and I was, attending my first ever language type event. And I was like, oh, this girl's from Melbourne. I really need to reach out and, and say hi and, and see if we can meet up. And and so we did. And then we, we met up and we decided, we, you know, we had all these amazing language things in common. Um, we loved learning languages and talking about languages. And really none of our friends really understood us when we did. So we found someone that we could finally talk to. Um, <laughs> and so we talked about building a little community, um, which we, we have, um, Language Lovers AU, and then from there that's kind of snowballed, hasn't it, Beck, that we decided we wanted to try and do a podcast, um, and so we podcast now um, under the name of Language Chats, and we've been doing that for two years, and yeah, we release an episode every fortnight, and it's just it's just really fun. Yeah, and it's pretty much as well. I think we
2: like we were realizing that we were having language chats every time we caught up, which was you know, really just really fun and light and casual, but sort of the way that we you know, neither of us are teachers. Um we're just people who are interested in languages and that kind of casual sort of chat was what we wanted to share a little bit more of. Um and Now, too, we have the opportunity to um, interview people a little bit more um, as well, Um, primarily other Australians who either speak or work with or are interested in languages, um, as well as a few international guests here and there, Um, but to just help share a little bit more that you know Australia is filled with lots of people who speak other languages and who use them day to day and who are interested in them Um, and that despite the fact that sometimes it can really feel like a a monolingual place where it's just English everything um, actually there are (laughs) lots of people here who who do lots of cool things with languages so um, I
1: suppose that's sort of part of our our mission (laughs) with language chats and what we (laughs) want to share (laughs) Um, And I started Lingo Mama around the same time that, um, yeah, about three years ago now. And it was just really as a way for me to, I just had a baby and I really wanted to get back into language learning. And I thought, you know what, some external accountability is probably a really good way to do it. So I thought let's (laughs) let's tell people that I'm starting to get back into Chinese and see what happens. Um, And I love going on language trips. So for me, um, immersing myself in in the culture of the language that I've, I'm studying um, is just the best thing. best thing. For me, I love it so much. And I luckily, before the pandemic, I was able to take my family and some friends as well on a couple of language trips. Um, we went to Taiwan to learn Mandarin Chinese and also to Vietnam to learn Vietnamese. And it's just, you know, it's just a really awesome feeling to do a bit of language study and then be able to use that language that you're learning and practicing out in out in the real world. And where can we find your blog? So I'm under lingomama.com and awesome. Instagram as well. Yeah. Cool. And
2: um, so Irregular Endings is my my little project. <laughs> <laughs> that I have on the side too, um, and that started a little bit earlier, um, probably about uh, about five years ago now, actually almost six years ago. Um, and so, I really wanted a way to be able to also bring languages back into my into my life. At the time, I very much had a job that was really nothing to do with languages, not even a little bit. <laughs> and um, something that I like, I'm quite a creative person. I love drawing. And um, I just kind of thought maybe I could put something together that kind of combines those a little bit, get sort of a passion project going outside in my um, outside of my working life, and um, so I started creating some, well, initially some vocabulary cards. Um, I don't really make those anymore, but it started there, um, some little illustrated vocab cards, and then. I sort of thought, oh, maybe I'll make some little greeting cards in other languages. I wonder if other people will be interested in that. And then it kind of just went from there. I just sort of added a few things here and there, did a few more greeting cards, created some notepads, um, you know, just a, a bunch of products that I thought other people like me who were interested in languages and might want to share, you know, even simple words with other people who they know, whether they're people who do speak those languages or don't, Um And yeah, just simple kind of creative things that made other languages feel a bit less, a bit more kind of normal um, day-to-day in everyday life. Um, And yeah, that's that's basically what it is. (laughs) And where can we find Irregular Endings? Uh, So you can find me at irregularendings.com.au or uh, also on Instagram at
0: irregular.endings. Perfect. I love that you both took your interests and made them, you know, your interest in language and made it so, made it fit into your lives. Like, you know, with your interest in travel, Penny, and with your art, Beck, it's, I think it's it's a really organic thing that I hope people listening um, can take from that and and realize that there's so many ways to bring language into your life and to meld it with the things that you love and that you're interested in. What I will do is I will add your links to all of your projects in the show notes so that people who are listening will be able to just click and find you right away and reach out, hopefully, um, you know, with kindness, as we always encourage on this show. (laughs) I want to say thank you both so much for this conversation and I've really enjoyed talking to you both. I always enjoy talking to fellow podcasters and (laughs) and talking about language and and I love these three-person conversations as well. I like to end each episode on the same question and that is, do you have any jokes, tongue twisters, cool slang words Idioms, words of wisdom, or words of advice in Australian English, or something that you'd typically hear in Melbourne to share? Oh, it's
1: such a good question. It it is a good question. I know, Elle, we've talked about how we shorten lots of words, but we do have some really crazy slang words. And then I'm just like, I hope that these are Australian. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that we're just not, like, you know, ripping them off other countries. Um, but I guess lots of things to do with, you know, um, chockers is one that I, I use a lot. I don't know if you ever say that, back, but, you know, oh, this this train is chocker block or this train is chockers and it just means, like, really full or overcrowded or, or oh, my day is chockers, can we do it tomorrow or... <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's just a really funny I know we're talking about idioms but that's just a really slang word that that is kind of funny that I do actually use in real life
0: (laughs) I love that I've never heard that before or if I have heard it I didn't know what it meant
1: I think also we have lots
2: of like shortenings for for things that we see day to day that end in o um like a service station becomes servo um the I'm trying to think, the the bottle shop becomes bottleo um the uh I suppose afternoon uh. goes to Arvo um I'm not sure where those came from or why we do that shortening um but that is something you would hear a lot um something else that is quite specific to Melbourne well at least I think it's specific to Melbourne although maybe this is just a more general uh, like kind of modern thing these days. I don't know, maybe maybe in New York City you see this sometimes too. So see so, so what you think. Um, but I've had a few, few conversations lately with friends about the way that when you go into a restaurant these days, in Melbourne in particular, the way they introduce the menu. Um, and like maybe it's been over the last, say, five years or so, um, there are sharing plates every, everywhere. Everything is designed for sharing Um, and something that I've really noticed in restaurants is that there's almost a bit of a playbook of how people greet you in a restaurant now in Melbourne, um, especially if it happens to be a little bit trendy. They sort of walk in and say to you, you know, hi, everyone, how are you going? Yeah, good, thanks, all good. Have you dined with us before? Have you been here before? You go, oh, well, you know, once before. Well, our menu is designed for sharing. (laughs) Whether that is specific to Melbourne or whether it reaches a little bit further than that, I'm not sure, but it's definitely a conversation I was having just recently with a bunch of friends. We were like, are we the only ones who do that? Like, does everybody know this script? Is this just a new hospitality way of introducing the menu at every restaurant in Melbourne? I don't know.
0: (laughs) You know, I'm going to have to think about that one. I've I've heard everything up until our menu is designed for sharing <laughs> but i'm gonna i <laughs> i think the rest of it is like yeah i've definitely heard that i think there's like an international mm. restaurant standard perhaps yeah. that, <laughs> um were you gonna add something penny
1: well i was just gonna say what beck was saying that melburnians and that's a term we use a lot melburnians is um there's always been this stereotype that Melbournians wear, wear black clothing and drink a lot of coffee. and And I think <laughs> there, there, is some, there is some truth in that <laughs> um, compared to the other cities in Australia. So that's just a little a little aside for people who might one day be travelling to our lovely country that they might find that to be true.
0: So what you're saying is that Melbourne and New York are the same. Ah, maybe maybe (laughs) yeah basically basically that's how that's how
2: great melbourne is it's it's as good as new york city
0: (laughs) beck and penny thank you so much for this conversation i've really enjoyed chatting with you and learning so much more about your part of australia and about the languages that you speak really quickly don't think about it too hard but if we were in Melbourne and we had just had this conversation and we're talking and laughing and chatting and then we it's time to go what is the best way to say goodbye
1: or a typical
0: way to say goodbye
1: take care see you soon that's what (laughs) i normally say see you later (laughs) (laughs) well
0: see you later take care see you soon (laughs) <laughs> and I'll be talking to you
1: ladies soon. Thanks, Al. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Al. Bye. Bye. Bye.